I would draw your attention this morning back to Ephesians 1. Back to Ephesians 1. We're going to read, I'm sure, several times as we go through this passage because it's very hard to break up Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So let's read that this morning as we begin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and, the, and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. It's hard not to stop there. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Mm. To the praise of his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning, Lord, that you would... Find our worship and our praise acceptable to you, that we would come on bended knee with humble hearts to seek you in the word this morning, to hear from you, to learn of you, to see what an amazing and blessed gift you have given us in choosing and in, 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 in predestinating us uh, to adoption as sons, Lord, that we might be a people overflowing with praise here this morning. And that might overflow into our lives as we walk through this world that others may see the joy that we have in the gift of our salvation. Bless us here this morning, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we will remember what we looked at last week in terms of the Apostle Paul as he started his doxology, these Verses 3 through 14, this hymn of praise to the, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We now pick this up. We looked at, uh, at verse 3, essentially, last week. We now pick this up and see why and how a man who is sitting in prison in Rome can cry out in praise instead of weeping and crying out in sorrow and self-pity due to the state that he finds himself in. 
he begins to explain here to us this morning to the church in Ephesians and and beyond and to us today how all these spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ have become ours. How is it that these amazing things, these things that we talked about last week to natural man are out of reach, these blessings that we don't find through the world or through worldly means can come to be the possession and inheritance of ones who are not born into them by natural means and are not due to them by way of their own merit. This is really the crux of the issue, isn't it? This is really the problem that man has. Man cannot, of his own means, get to God. It's impossible. There is this vast chasm of sin that lies in the way. And we can't buy these blessings. They're not for sale. We can't merit these blessings because we're fallen creatures who are at enmity with God. We cannot steal them because we have no power to plunder the almighty storehouse of God's grace. See then what a seemingly lost cause this is? Man cannot do this for himself. And it's because of this that that Paul just overflows with thanksgiving when he is telling these hearers how it is that you who are incapable of getting this may obtain it. It is a concept, it is is a, a reality that you will not find in any other religion. It's only in the Word of God. You won't find it from Muhammad, you won't find it from Buddha, you won't find it from any other place. That's all about what you can do. All we can do is demerit, is earn more penalty. But God has made a way. And this is exclusive. Christianity is an exclusive religion. Very exclusive. There's only one way to get what mankind needs. One. No other way. So Paul begins here in verse 4. He's showing the foundation of these blessings and how they come at the beginning or, in fact, before the beginning. Paul says something to the effect of, you, you can almost hear him, we'll paraphrase what he says a little bit here. Let us fix our minds, our ears, our hearts, our eyes on the word this morning that we may learn something of what he says here, that this was done before the foundation of the world. So let's, let's begin by looking at verse 4. Paul says, even as he. Even as he. We must first approach this, this passage and ask ourselves, why is it that any person is experiencing, is experiencing spiritual blessing in their lives? Why is it that any one of us may experience this? Why is it that I may be the beneficiary of these spiritual blessings? 
How can I, a lost member of the fallen human race, born in sin, enslaved to it, experience these blessings in my life? We must see that this experience is not rooted in ourselves. It's not rooted in man. It is not even rooted in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That itself flows out of the root of this spiritual blessing. The belief, the faith in and of itself is a fruit of this blessing. But it is not the root of the blessing or the fount out of which that blessing flows. He is the root. He is. While it is true that these blessings flow to the believer through the work of Jesus Christ, the fountain of this is God the Father. Paul said, even as he. Even as he. These blessings from which we may find joy, or as Paul found joy while he's sitting in a prison cell chained to a Roman soldier, is found by, in, and through the will of the Father who chose to give to his Son a people. That's where it all starts. We don't want to look to our own thoughts. Our, our own thoughts will tend to lead us astray. This is damaging to human pride. This doctrine, this, this reality that Paul speaks of here is damaging to human pride. We look to the inerrant, unfailing, unchanging word of God to understand what it is that Paul is speaking about and the source from which our salvation comes. <clears throat> we want to always proclaim in this church to the world and to any who hear our message, thus saith the Lord. That's all we care about. I really don't care what the pastors I admire have to say if it's not said in accordance with the word of God. Men err. The word of God does not. And as difficult as some of these things are to hu the human condition and the pride of humanity, this is the word of God. And it's the word of God that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathing the word of God into him for us to benefit from and to have knowledge of God. We find Paul here that, that he says that he, that is God the Father, chose us in him, that is in Christ. He placed his people in Christ because they would never be able to stand before a holy and a righteous God in their own merit. You cannot stand before God in yourself. It is for that very reason that God the Father chose us in Him, in Christ, that they may be standing in the, the merit in the righteousness of Christ, in his shed blood. 
if it hadn't been for, for Christ, we would have no standing at all. You know, we often talk, and, and just, just as an aside here this morning, we often talk about this robe of Christ's righteousness that's given to us as God's people. Well, I was listening this week to a message, and I don't even remember who it was from, but he was talking about what this, this, this robe actually was. Your robe, the colors that you wore, the way that it was made, all were an identity to the people of this era. And to have your robe exchanged, that which you had, your robe of, of sin and unrighteousness, exchanged for a robe of righteousness from Christ himself, from God the Son, it is a total change in identity. That is the only way that we will ever stand before a righteous and holy God who will not look at sin. To stand in, do you see here why all of this in him is here in our scripture that we have this morning, 3 through 14? It's in him. It's in the beloved. It's in Christ that we get to experience these blessings because we stand in him. It was necessary for us in light of the fall to be placed in Christ. And this is not the doctrine of Paul alone. Uh, I had dad read for our scripture reading this morning, John 17. And you'll remember that in John 17, Jesus, we, we can turn there real quick, if you will. We won't spend a lot of time. We're going to kind of skip through the verses here. But in John 17, Jesus is about to be betrayed. The purpose, the purpose, isn't that what Ephesians here is about? But the purpose for Christ becoming the Word made flesh, for Him coming and becoming flesh, is about to be completed as He will be crucified on the cross. And He is here praying to the Father right before His betrayal and arrest. And we often, we often refer to this as the high priestly prayer. But I want you to, to look at this and see what it means here to be in Christ. To be given before the foundation of the world, to be given by God the Father, even as he chose us in him, in Christ. He gave us to be placed in Christ. John 17, 1 through 2 when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. It's time. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. All that you've given to the Son. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished that work that you gave me to do. I would love to spend hours just sitting down and looking at what it is here in John 17 that Paul is, is talking about from Ephesians 1. 
because it's found here. It's not just Paul's doctrine. This is the doctrine of Christ. John 17, 6-7, I have manifest your, manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Even as he chose us in him. John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. John 17, 12, the next verse, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then we see something in, in John 17, too, of this unique characteristic that is applied to those chosen and given to the son, as they were chosen in the son. They are in Christ. They receive what Christ receives. They receive what, what it is that Christ is for us. We are in him. They are placed in him, and by that union, they receive the spiritual blessings of Christ himself, not of their own merit, but as Christ by his own merit is the builder and architect of all that comes through him. John 17, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the word is, world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Until you are in Christ, you are all of the world. But when you're placed in Christ, there's something different. You are no longer of the world, as Christ is not of the world. He has given us the word. He has given us himself and we are no longer of the world, but we're in Christ. In Christ, we are something far greater. We are of this place that Christ is of. No longer of this world, but we have a house, we have a dwelling, that we have a home that is not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Isn't that what scripture tells us? We have been joined to the one who in him we look forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Christ repeats this same thing in John 17, 16. A couple verses later when he says again, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then in John 17, 19, John records that part of Jesus' prayer where he says that he consecrates himself, he sets himself apart, that they may also be consecrated. And we will see in just a moment what that entails. But all these things, and, and you, could, you could just keep on going through John 17, and more and more evidence of this. From the lips of Christ in his prayer to the Father.
This is one gospel, is it not? One gospel. All these things by the choosing of God the Father through the work of God the Son that we may be partakers of that which belongs by right to Christ Jesus. Well, then where, where or when, I should say, did this choosing take place? This choosing took place before the foundation of the world. This is before the creation of those creatures who exist in time as we exist. Charles Hodge brings out two, two things from this that, that I think are, are, are good for us to look at in what this, what this entails, being, being chosen before the foundation of the world. First, he says, that God does everything in time according to a preconceived plan and works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Is that not what we learn here in our passage that we read before the message in, in Ephesians? He works all things according to the counsel of his own will from eternity. The whole plan of salvation, the unfolding of the redemptive plan and purpose of God lies matured in the divine mind. This purpose, this plan was complete in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And secondly, he says what is expressed here is the sovereignty of divine purpose. This grace has been given to us, set upon us before we existed, before the world began and before we had done any good or evil. This is developed further by Paul when he wrote Romans 9. And if you want to turn there, you can. But Romans 9, 11 through 13 says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The purpose of God and the decrees of God are not subject to change. What was it that it said in, in Romans 9? There, it says that, the, that God's purpose of election might continue. It, it is not subject to change. God is not man. He is not the son of man that he should change his mind. He is the Lord. He has spoken. It shall come to pass. He says and he will do it. He chose his people in Christ and he will bring them to Christ. He will complete that which he chose to do in eternity past, as he purposed the time and place to make this a reality in the lives of those whom he chose. He will bring it to pass. And what then is the purpose? 
What, what is brought about by the fact that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world? It is this, according to our text here, it is this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be set apart, that we should be consecrated to him. That we should be blessed with the unnatural ability to stand before Almighty God. This is not natural to fallen man. If fallen man stands before Almighty God in themselves, they will perish. It's that we should be set apart that we should be reconciled unto him, placed into right standing before him, to give unto us, who are sinners, something that is quite alien to the sinner, to those under the curse of the law, to have that curse removed, and to be declared legally free from the penalty and the burden of our sin. This is what he did. For us. We are all by nature and judicial declaration dead in trespasses and sins. We won't go into this fully, but when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they died. God told them, in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. They ended up dying physically. There was a judicious, judicial decree against them of death, but they continued to live physically. But the penalty was awaiting them for their sin. We who have that judicial declaration put upon us by our federal head, Adam, by that one in whom we all fell into the state of sinfulness, we might, through what God has done for us, stand as if we had never sinned in Christ. That's a miracle. That's divine. This is exactly what we'll learn from Paul in Ephesians 2 when we get there. We have of ourselves no way to provide resolution for this state that fallen man is in. In and of ourselves, we must be made into something different, not of ourselves. We must be transformed. We must be brought back, bought back from our enslavement to sin and sin's master. We must be purchased from our slavery to sin to become slaves of righteousness. So in love, as our text says, God acted, he planned, he chose to place us in one who knew no sin, who was not subject to the sin that we were subject to who had not only the absence of sin, but in and of himself, Christ had an inherent righteousness. He was not only free of sin, he was righteous. 
God, the triune God, acted of, through, and by himself to redeem for himself a people to make them holy and blameless before him. He had to do this of, through, and by himself. I would have you notice this morning that we are nothing but recipients of these things. He did not choose us because of some foreseen righteousness in us or some foreseen holiness which exists in some deep dark corner of our heart. This island of righteousness that, that, uh, that certain groups of people who are professing Christians believe exists inside the human heart. Our text is quite clear here. He chose us in Christ, who is the source of his people's righteousness, before we had done any good or evil. This was before we were born. This is before the foundation of the world. He chose us that we would be, that we should be made to be holy and blameless before him. If men are chosen to be holy, they cannot be chosen because they are holy. Let me say that one more time. If men are chosen to be holy, the purpose in choosing them is to make them holy They can't be chosen because they are holy. They are made holy. This is altogether His work and His provision. We are, as we learn from Scripture, we're but clay. Chosen and made to be vessels set apart to honor and glorify Him. There is more that we find that supports these things as we begin looking at the fifth verse. He predestined us. That is, he predetermined what is to come to pass. He did not roll the cosmic dice here and see where the chips are going to fall. No, he determined whatsoever will come to pass in our, in, in, in our particular text here this morning of Ephesians 1 4 through 6, he has chosen whatsoever will come to pass, and he has purposed and put those things into motion for those whom he chose in verse 4. This is the unfolding plan of redemption through and of God the Father through Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. Over and over again in Scripture, God Almighty tells His people, Old Testament, New Testament, that He has purposed and He's going to bring what He purposes to pass. We find in the next phrase here what it is that He has purposed and predestined for those whom He had chosen. He chose them to be adopted 
to be made his children, adopted through the work of Christ on our behalf that we might be fit to be sons of God. God who is of holier eyes than to behold sin and who cannot look at wrong has chosen his people and placed them in Christ that they may be holy and blameless before him and it is in that position with their debts paid and placed on the cross of Christ that they might be made sons by adoption. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 14 through 17, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Who are those who have the Spirit of God? They're those who have been made alive. Those who have been regenerated, those who have been justified, are given the Spirit of God. All those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For they did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We receive that which is given to Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. What a marvelous blessing to be called the sons of God. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children, to become children of God. And Galatians tells us in chapter 3, verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There is something here that is, is worth mentioning, worth looking at in this passage. Since our culture is so different from the culture of these biblical times. The text here says in in verse 5 that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. As sons. The inheritance that was given to children back in biblical times differs greatly from the inheritance that we, we deal with today. Daughters were given no inheritance. This was something that was given to sons. And the oldest son was given a double portion of inheritance to take care of a widowed mother or a sister who was not married. But they received no inheritance. The inheritance for a daughter was received when she married her husband and she received the benefit of his inheritance. So if you had three sons let's say, the inheritance would be divided into four parts. The first two parts of that inheritance would go to the eldest son, the firstborn. And then each of the other sons, the other two, would receive one part of that inheritance, and the daughters would receive nothing by way of inheritance from their fathers. But here, Paul specifically states that all of those, male and female, who are chosen of the Father, 
placed in the Son, predestined to be adopted, are adopted as sons and receive an inheritance. They receive Christ, His blessings, all these spiritual blessings that are received. This is an amazing thing. And especially, I'm sure, when his readers here in Ephesus heard this, to realize that these blessings, this this inheritance, is the same for everyone who is in Christ. Jew, Greek, male, female, doesn't matter. Because it's all in Christ. Christ died for them, these people, these ones to be adopted. Christ died for them according to the plan of the Father, who planned and purposed their adoption on the condition that Christ's death would make them fit for this adoption, and that his satisfaction and his redemption price would restore to them the families. their father's family and reinstate them in all the privileges of this divine relationship which he predestined to them as sons. All of this is given to them through the work of Jesus Christ. What makes this even more incredible is that the very grounds for this choosing, this election... And this predestination is not the works of man. It's not man's own choosing, but in and through the purpose of what our text tells us here this morning, that it is through the, according to or through the purpose of his will. Of his will. We have already quoted Romans 9 that Romans 9, 11 through 13, that though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older, older shall serve the younger. It is of his will. James echoes this in James 1, 17 through 18, where he says, every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now listen, of his own will. Of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Notice here a few things from this passage in James. First, it's the same thing spoken of here as we have been seeing in Ephesians. These good gifts, these perfect gifts, as Paul states them in Ephesians, spiritual blessings come from above, come from heavenly places, as Paul states it in Ephesians. Second, they come from the will of the Father, of his own will, James says, He brought us forth. This is the language of creation power being brought forth. 
making something that wasn't into something that is. Transformative power, life-giving power, by his will, not the will of the creature, the will of the creator. This is creative power. This is life-giving power. And third, by the word of truth, James says, who is the word of truth? Who is it? It's none other than the, the word made flesh. Who is the way, the truth, and the life? James states it like this, by the word of truth. Paul simply states it as in Christ, in him. God did all this by his own will, by his sovereign will, his free and perfect will. This is the truth we find expressed both in a negative form and a positive form when we look at the tail end of Romans 9. After stating, if, let, let's go ahead and turn to, to Romans 9. Let's do that. After stating these things that we've already discussed here, which is in reality a death blow to human will, to human power, to human self-idolatry. Humanity always has this, this urge to place themselves on the throne. Paul demolishes that in Romans 9. Just, just obliterates it. But Paul anticipates the reaction and the hatred of mankind for this very doctrine. He is led to write a response to which he knows will be leveled against this doctrine of election, this choosing in Ephesians 1, and this predestination that we find in Romans 1, which he also talk, talks about in Romans, excuse me, Ephesians 1, which he also talks about in Romans 9. Look with me at verse 14 through 26. What shall we say then? Now this is right on the tail of him saying that the purpose of election might continue not of works, but because of him who calls, and the fact that they, they were chosen having done neither good nor evil. Okay? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now listen, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Will, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter not right over the clay to make out of, one, of, out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, if you remember from last time, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my, not beloved, I will call beloved. And in, this very, in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Predestined to adoption of his will the negative affirmation that we find there not of human will or exertion the positive affirmation but of God it's his will thanks be to God God the Father for the power and the mercy that he has bestowed upon his people according to the purpose of his will, which he made possible for us through God the Son. Of his own will, he purposed the choosing and the predestination through Jesus Christ. And not only did he purpose it, he has been and is continuing to bring it all to pass. Listen to what Luke tells us in Acts 2, where he records Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 22 through 23. Men of Israel, I can just, just hear Peter standing before this great multitude, yelling out at the top of his lung, Men of Israel, just hear me. Hear me. Hear about Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up. Now listen, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was not ultimately, listen to me here, it was not ultimately the plan of man to crucify Jesus Christ. It was the plan of God the Father before the foundation of the world to give Christ a people to redeem. And he, God himself, delivered 
our Lord and Savior over to these sinful men according to his plan to establish his purpose of salvation, of redemption, and of adoption according to the purpose of his will. It's his plan. It's his purpose. It's that which he brought to pass and is even even now bringing many sons to glory. Through this plan that has never changed. He never intended to do this apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was no plan B when all of a sudden man fell. What am I going to do now? Oh, I'll make Christ. No, before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, God the Son, present with him, by his power the world was created. And before he created the world, God the Father gave that one a people to redeem. Before the fall ever took place. This was always his plan. We don't subscribe to some theoretical theology. We're not going to lose our minds and our foundations of our faith in the what-ifs and the what-could-have-beens. We're not going to do that. God has declared to us His way in His Word. And His way is according to His will. And He has the authority and the power, and the right, and every other sovereign attribute to carry that plan out to completion. And one day, all of those, in John, he says, there's others that I must bring. He's still working until he brings the last lost sheep. And then it's done. Then redemptive history will be completely finished. But that's what he's bringing about. He's declared his way, and it is to choose a people before the foundation of the world and set them apart to himself by giving them to the Son. And he predestinated them to adoption with all the blessings and all the inheritance that the status of sonship imparts to those who are restored to his family. Don't let the hatred the world has and even professing Christians have for this doctrine make you shy away from it. This is God's word. This is the clear and overarching teaching of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The complete Bible, the Word of God, declares this to be so. We'll start to wrap it up. As Paul starts to wrap up this small section of his doxology here, what is the purpose of revealing this plan? As expressed in election and adoption, it's quite simply this. It is to the praise of His glorious grace. I will boldly stand and proclaim 
that there is no other doctrine which will lead to more praise than this one that Paul gives us here in Ephesians 1. Sinful man and flesh may rebel against it, but nothing could give more praise for his glorious grace than the knowledge that it is all of him from start to finish. It's his grace, it's his mercy, it's his will, and it's his plan. It's not of human will or exertion. It's of God who shows mercy. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let no one who boasts, or excuse me, let the one who boasts, Boast in the Lord. Can you boast in Him this morning? Chosen in Him. Predestined to adoption as sons. In Christ. Of His will. Of His plan. Of His power. Can you boast this morning in the Lord? I pray you can. And once again, he brings it right back to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. Can we boast in the Lord? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much this morning for what you did before the foundations of the world. We thank you that thank you that of your will and for your own good pleasure that you chose people to be your children. You place them in Christ. You place them in the one who could purchase their salvation. Who could clothe them in righteousness. Who could free them from the bondage of sin. Who could satisfy your wrath. Lord, give us thankful hearts that we might live our lives to the praise of your glorious grace. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.